everyone. Welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. As always, brought to you by you with your support on Patreon.com. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Rob Coons, who specializes in philosophical logic. He's a professor at um, Texas and at Austin. Uh, Dr. Coons, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm really glad to talk to you today. We're going to be talking about an argument that you worked on in a 1997 paper. I believe it was about like arguing for like a necessary foundation uh, to reality. So lots of fun stuff. But what got you interested in like philosophy and metaphysics and all these like fun big questions? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, a couple of things. Already when, when I was in high school, uh, I was involved with um, a ministry. It was actually part of the Campus Crusade um, Ministries, and they, um, the staff person, encouraged me to read um, some C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer. So that that actually introduced me to some philosophical ideas. Uh, then when I got to college, my advisor uh, encouraged me to take a course in philosophy on my very first semester. And we started with the ancient Greeks, with Thales and everything's water and so on. And I just got hooked immediately. And so uh, it's just been philosophy ever since, basically. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so today we're going to be talking about um, an argument in a 1997 paper where you talk about there being a necessary uh, foundation for reality. So could you just kind of like lay out like the general kind of argument that you're going to be talking about today that, that's presented in this paper? Yes, right. So um, I just reread the paper this morning, and it, it holds up pretty well, actually. Um, it um, was at the beginning, actually, of, of something of a renaissance of interest in this particular argument. So there's been a lot of work done in the last um, 20 years, and it's, it's, I think, accelerating in recent years. So it's a very recent project, but it's also very old. because It really goes back to the very beginnings of philosophical thinking about, about God uh, in, in Plato and in Aristotle, uh, certainly uh, picked up then by the uh, by uh, later Greeks and Romans, uh, Neoplatonists, uh, scholastic thinkers, Jewish, Muslim, and Christian in the medieval period, very popular in the early modern period. It's actually some very interesting parallels in the Indian uh, subcontinent as well. The Nyaya school has some similar arguments. So all, all, this whole family of arguments is really looking at the question of causation. Uh, what is it that causes the world to be the way it is? And the thought is that if you if you um, apply that kind of question over and over again, you eventually reach the question of what was the cause of the whole thing? What what started? What what's the, ultimately the explanation for the world we see around us? And this leads to the idea of a first cause, an uncaused cause. Uh, and, then, and the traditional idea has been that once we've gotten to that uncaused cause, it is itself necessary in existence that uh, can be identified with God, that can be identified with the being that we worship and that we, we uh, seek to get to know in our religious life as well. So there's a kind of convergence of philosophical, scientific, metaphysical approach to the world and the religious perspective. Right. So uh, today we're going to be talking about, it's almost like two stages of like a contingent argument. Generally, you have like first there being an essay being in that being, and the second stage being that it's God. Uh, so today we're going to talk mostly about the first stage. Um, and one thing that's really interesting in the paper is kind of like breaking down the difference between a contingent fact and a necessary fact. Um, so could you talk about like, what's the difference here? And I know modality is an important thing to think about when we're looking at this. So can you, can you yeah. break this down for us a little bit? Yeah, so one of the things I did in the paper, and uh, it's an area that's, that's been, uh, again, uh, seen a lot of work in, in recent metaphysics is to focus on the idea of, of facts where, or, or sometimes they're called truth makers. So facts are sort of concrete, real 
they're parts of reality. They, they are what responsible for making things true. So there's a fact that I'm right here in Austin. There's the fact that I'm a philosopher, the fact that I'm wearing a tweed jacket and so on. Each of those are facts. Uh, now those are all contingent facts because uh, it's certainly possible that I could have been in Dallas instead of Austin or, or that I could be wearing a linen jacket instead of a tweed jacket or that I could be a plumber instead of a philosopher. So in each of those cases, um, there's a, it could have been otherwise-ness <laughs> about the facts, right? Or just could have failed to exist. Right, it could have failed to obtain, is the way philosophers sometimes put it, these facts. Uh, they obtained in the actual world, but they might not have obtained. They, things, other, things could have gone otherwise. Now, this is not an epistemological issue. It's not that I have any doubt about whether I'm a philosopher. Gee, maybe I'm really a plumber. It's not that. It's, it's rather, I, mean, I know I'm a philosopher, but I could have been a plumber, right? Things could have gone differently uh, in my history and would have led to me being here rather than there. And so the, the, the argument really starts with the idea that when we find contingent facts, we are always drawn to looking for some sort of explanation for those facts. In fact, I think a causal explanation, what caused that contingent fact to exist. Um, and if there are facts that aren't contingent, they would be necessary facts. They would be facts that have to be the way they are, facts that couldn't have been otherwise, couldn't have failed to obtain, as we say. Mm, right. One kind of objection um, that I think is you talk a, a little bit about in the paper is the idea of like, what if everything may be just like a necessary fact? Um, you know, you could think about it like we, we only have one universe and things have played out the way they have. Um, and maybe it's just necessary. Everything's necessary in the way it is and things couldn't have gone otherwise. Maybe you, in a sense, were like determined to wear that jacket or things like that. So how would you kind of respond to that objection? Yeah, right. So that's a, an important point. Because um, as, as you say, if um, possibility were a mere illusion, or if it were merely a kind of uh, mental construction, and the world as it really is just is necessarily the way it is, then that has all kinds of implications. I mean, it, it, for one thing, it has practical implications, right? It means that uh, any kind of deliberating about the future doesn't really make any sense, right? Why should I think about what I want for lunch today? There's no possibility that I'll have anything other than what I actually will have, right? Uh, everything's already fixed. And so the very fact that we deliberate about the future, about what we will do, uh, that presupposes that there's a contingency there, right? That I might have a sandwich or I might not, right? That both, both are possible. Uh, it also has implications for science because science is all about explaining things. But if everything's necessary, um, then it, it, it's hard to see how scientific explanation at least could work. The scientific explanation says um, that we can, uh, we can explain things in terms of uh, laws of nature and initial conditions in such a way that if we were to change those conditions or the laws, we would get a different result. And again, if, if those different results are not possible, then it's really not clear what we're doing when we're trying to construct scientific explanations. Um, another thing, one last point I might make here is that um, quantum mechanics seems to point to the reality of, of, of possibility. Uh, that uh, because the you know the, the, the fundamental law of quantum th quantum theory, Schrodinger equations talk talk about the evolution of possibilities, of potentialities, uh, and so if those potentialities were unreal, then there'd be nothing for the quantum theory to be telling us about. It's telling us about the probabilities of various outcomes. And that presupposes that different outcomes are possible. Mm. Right. So lots of great stuff here. Um, and as we kind of move on into this argument, I think it'd be helpful to talk about like causation um, and just like contingent facts. Like 
you know, there's things like the principle of sufficient reason, which suggests that for contingent facts, there's some sort of like explanation for their existence. Um, so in your argument, do you rely on this kind of like principle of sufficient reason in a sense? Um, so like, how does that play into your argument? Yeah, so I, I talk about a, a causal principle, which is definitely in the family of these principles of sufficient reason, because I am I am assuming that uh, when we whenever we have a contingent or I call it a wholly contingent fact, uh, there should be a causal explanation of that fact. That is, there should be something else, something separate from the fact to be explained, which has the power to make that fact happen, right? To produce the fact that we see. Um, so that that's that's the form in which in which I take take the argument. Um, another thing that I that I do in the paper is that I um, I only insist that this principle be a defeasible principle or sort of a, a presumptive rule. That is, if you see something contingent, you there's a there's a presumption that there must be a cause. Maybe there won't necessarily have to be one, but we should at least assume that there is one, unless we can find some reason to think there isn't a cause. Mm. Right. So um, one very common objection, I think, to this idea is like quantum mechanics would show that there, you know, there's these instances where things happen without explanation, like there's just sheer chance or um, maybe they say something pops out of nothing. So how do you respond to like a popular objection that quantum mechanics would kind of disprove this causal principle? Yeah, it's actually the opposite, in fact. So quantum mechanics uh, demonstrates that we do look for causes. But what it shows is that causes don't have to be necessitating causes. That is, they're causes that make the effect probable or give it some probability. And that's sufficient for a causal explanation. Right? So, so if you set up one of these quantum experiments where you know electron is sent out and there's two slits and it can either go through the left slit or the right slit, uh, and there's no way to predict in advance which slit it'll go through, just as you say, it's a matter of chance which way it goes. But if you look at the quantum mechanical laws, it will tell you there's a certain probability that it'll go through the first slit and a certain probability that it'll go through the second slit. And then we see, let's say it goes through the right slit. We can say, well, there's an explanation for why it went through the right slit. Namely, there was this production of an electron. There was a quantum mechanical law that gave it a certain probability to go through the right slit and it did go through the right slit. Okay, so so what quantum mechanics doesn't say is that just any old thing can happen any time without a cause. <laughs> That's not allowed in quantum mechanics at all, right? Uh, if some if I see something that appears on the screen, there has to be some quantum mechanical explanation as to how that was possible, and that fits exactly into the kind of pattern that I'm asking for. Right. Awesome. Um, so we'll, I'd love to talk now about some of what you call the lemmas in your paper. We will be doing a live Q&A in about 20, 25 minutes. If you have questions or super chats, uh, feel free to put those in. Um, but you defend some, like, uh, I don't know if you want to call them premises or assertions or whatever it may be um, with this argument. And it'd be fun to break those down. So the first one says that all parts of a necessary fact are themselves necessary. Um, so that's kind of an interesting principle. Uh, so what is this principle and like, how does it apply with like your, your argument? Yeah, so as I was explaining earlier, uh, what I mean in this paper by facts are concrete realities that are the ground of truth, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and so they're very particular on my picture. So, so, um, so for instance, um, the fact that I'm sitting on a chair right now is a fact, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that, that, that somebody is sitting on some chair, that's a truth, but it's not a fact on my picture. It's a truth that's made true by lots of facts, namely by I'm sitting on this chair, you're sitting on your chair, and so on. Right. So the so the so there's not even a one-to-one -one correspondence between truths and facts in my picture. The facts are worldly things, right? And and they're very particular and concrete. Right? 
Now, um, they're, they're what uh, my friend Josh Morris Moosen called arrangements uh, in the world, right? Now, uh, can we put some of these facts together, right? Well, it seems to me we can, right? So I'm sitting in a chair and you're sitting in a chair, let's say, right? So there's a, there's a joint fact that consists of my sitting in a chair and you sitting in your chair we can put together, right? Uh, and, and similarly, we could put together the fact that I'm sitting in a chair and that two plus two is four. We could put those two facts together and get another joint fact, right? Mm -hmm. Now, this, this joining together of facts is analogous to conjunction in logic. It's analogous to saying you're sitting in the chair and I'm sitting in the chair, right? Mm -hmm. so, so let's suppose we have a necessary fact, right? Like let's say two plus two being four and two plus three being five. So there's a joint necessary fact. Right. Now, do the two parts of that fact have to themselves be necessary? Well, yes, because if one of them were contingent, it would make the whole thing contingent. I mean, consider the fact, again, that I'm sitting in the chair and two plus two is four. Right. Part is contingent. Part is necessary. Is the whole necessary or contingent? The whole is contingent. Right. Because as long as it has one contingent part, that makes the whole thing contingent. So that means that if you have a necessary fact, all the parts of that fact also have to be necessary. So that, that is an important premise of my, of my, uh, my argument. Um, and of course, conversely, that means that um, at this point, I introduce the idea of a wholly contingent fact, which is something I define. A wholly contingent fact is a fact that's contingent and doesn't have any necessary parts. Right? So again, this joint fact of my sitting in the chair and two plus two being four, that's not wholly contingent because it has a necessary part. But maybe my sitting in a chair is itself is just wholly contingent. It has no necessary parts. So that's that's important because I'm going to argue in the I argue in the paper that it's the wholly contingent things that have causes, right? not not just contingent things in general, but just the ones that are wholly contingent. Yeah, that's a great um, second principle that we'll talk about here in a second. But one thing I wonder is when I've encountered like skeptics and talking with them, one thing that's come up is that you can't demonstrate that there's anything necessary, like you know you have with like verificationism and like a newer version of atheism it's like you need to like prove or demonstrate something to be true for it to like be accepted um so how would you respond to that kind of like line of thought where we don't we don't have any proof or examples that we can like point to and say hey that thing's necessary hmm. right well i mean the point of the argument is is to demonstrate that there is something necessary um, and so, uh, so, you know, I mean, the, the argument itself, if it works, <laughs> will answer yeah. that, that charge, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is a tradition, though, in philosophy to say that, um, that all the necessary facts have to be uh, sort of trivial mathematical facts or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, logical or mathematical facts. They can't be substantive or mm -hmm. um, they can't involve the existence of anything. I think they're only about our ideas, maybe. That's, that's the idea that Hume made. Uh, the way philosophers sometimes put this was that all necessary truths are analytic truths, or analytic means just sort of true by definition, kind of trivial, vacuous truths, right? Now, the problem with that position, there's a lot of problems with that position. It's not really very popular in philosophy these days. I'll just mention one. Uh, it's self-refuting, self right? Because Hume and Kant and the others say all necessary truths are analytic, are trivial. And I have to ask myself, is that a necessary truth or not? Mm. If it's a contingent truth, where's the evidence for it? Right? Mm. If it's a necessary truth, it's, it contradicts itself because it's not a trivial truth, right? If all necessary truths are, are trivial, that's not a trivial truth. That's a substantive mm. truth. So I think it's a, ultimately a self-defeating position. You have to admit the possibility, at least, that, that there could be some necessary facts that are non-trivial. And that's what the whole argument is trying to show is, in fact, there is a concrete being who exists necessarily as the first cause. Right. So that's great. So 
the next part, like the next um, lemma you bring forth is this idea that every contingent fact has a wholly contingent part. Um, so it's a really interesting kind of like uh, idea here. So what, what's exactly going on here? Yeah, so really I'm just applying um, some basic principles of a, of a field we call myriology in philosophy, just the theory of parts and wholes. But I can illustrate it real simply in a, using a, a, a raisin muffin, right? So let's say that every raisin is raisiny all the way through. It doesn't have any non-raisiny parts, okay? Now, um, and so uh, and we'll think of the raisins are like the necessary facts, right? Just as necessary facts are necessary all the way through, they don't have any contingent parts. Raisins are raisinly all the way through. Now you've got a raisin muffin, okay? So it's got, it's got raisins, it's also got some dough. So the dough is the contingent stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So the raisin, as a, the raisin muffin as a whole is contingent because it's not all raisins, it's got other stuff in it as well. Now the question is, is there some wholly doughy part of the, of the raisin muffin? And the answer is yes, because you just take all the raisins delete them from the muffin and whatever's left is gonna be wholly doughy, right? Mm. And in the same way, if you take a contingent fact and you delete all the necessary parts, whatever is left, and there will be something left, will be wholly contingent. So every contingent fact has a wholly contingent component or part, at least one. Right, so is this kind of saying like, um, you know, obviously <clears throat> believe in God. So once God creates something, there'd be like contingent things and everything that God creates, like nothing, God wouldn't create something that would be like wholly necessary. Well, it's just it's just this. So so take suppose I take God's existence and the fact that I'm sitting in a chair. Okay, mm -hmm. um, that is a contingent fact, right? Mm -hmm. Because it includes my sitting in this chair right now, which is contingent. Mm -hmm. But it's not wholly contingent. And so if I asked, you know, does God cause that whole thing? Well, no, because he doesn't cause his own existence. Right? He only causes the wholly contingent part, namely my sitting in the chair. Right. So, so it's a it's a, it's a way to to eliminate the possibility or the worry that God would have to cause Himself or explain Himself. Hmm. Uh, we take the necessary stuff out. We look at just the wholly contingent stuff that's left, and we claim that God is the explanation. The first cause is the explanation for that stuff only. All right, that's great. Um, so, the fourth lemma that we you bring forth is that if there are any contingent facts, C is a wholly uh, contingent fact. So it seems like kind of going along with this principle about like contingency here. Uh, but what is this yeah. third lemma, and like what's it trying to trying to show here? Yeah. So what I do in the in the paper is I define the cosmos, which I'm calling C, as the sum total of all of the wholly contingent facts of the world. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I'm sitting in the chair, you're sitting in the chair, I'm in Austin, and so on. But all those contingent facts together, and that's cosmos. That's the cosmos. Mm -hmm. Now, will that be wholly contingent itself? Well, think, every part of it, no, no part of it will have any necessary bits, right? And so when you put it all together, the, the sum will also not have any necessary bits, right? Because you don't get necessary bits by adding together a bunch of contingent bits. That's really what the formal part of the paper is showing. So, so once we've got, and here's the interesting thing, right? Once you've got the cosmos defined in this way, we can then show that the cosmos is wholly contingent. And my causal principle says, if something's wholly contingent, it should have a cause. So we get that the cosmos has a cause. So it actually falls out, the first cause argument actually falls out very quickly once you, once you define things in this way. Right, right. That's great. So uh, kind of like the last lemma you bring forth, which is kind of starting to put things uh, together in this argument, is that if there are any contingent facts, then C, uh, representing the cosmos, would have a cause. So uh, I'm guessing this premise is just kind of searching if there are contingent things in the cosmos, and then there must be some sort of like explanation or necessary grounding for uh, the cosmos in the first place. 
Yeah, that's right. So if they're necessary, you know, put it all together again, if suppose there's some contingent facts, then we've shown that those contingent facts have some wholly contingent parts. So there's some wholly contingent stuff. Now take all the wholly contingent stuff together, right? Uh, it's gonna be wholly contingent, so it has to have a cause. Now, and here's the next assumption, which we haven't talked about yet, which is that causes and effects have to be separate from each other. And again, that's just the idea that nothing causes itself, right? So if, if A causes B, a can't be part of B or can't even overlap B. It's got to be completely separate from it. Mm -hmm. So the cause of the cosmos has to be separate from the cosmos, right? So it has to be something that doesn't overlap this wholly contingent cosmos. But suppose that this cause were itself contingent, right? Then remember, we showed that every contingent thing has a wholly contingent part. Mm -hmm. But then it would overlap the cosmos because the cosmos includes all the wholly contingent stuff. And so that's impossible. So therefore, the cause of the cosmos has to be a necessary being, has to be a necessary fact. Right? That just, again, follows from the definitions. So we've actually, if this worked, we've, we've demonstrated there is something, some fact, which is necessary, and moreover, which is causally powerful, right? a causally powerful necessary fact. And that's a pretty interesting result. Mm. Yeah, I find this argument so, so fun for just kind of arguing for necessary being. So like putting it all together, uh, would you say that kind of like this argument showing that if there's contingent things and they like depend on an explanation, there must be like some sort of like necessary um, thing or something along those lines, like fundamental to reality? Yes, that's right. That's right. And, uh, there has to be a necessary fact, which provides the causal explanation for all the contingent stuff. Right, right, right. So, um, an interesting idea is, you know, you can you can accept stage one of a contingency argument that there is some sort of like necessary thing. Or being, um, but the question is, what would make that necessary being God? Um, right. A lot of different things, and there's a lot of different things people will throw forth. One is like a more like online version, which is maybe saying like um, it might be like matter or energy, um, applying like maybe like the law of conservation of energy. Say, hey, energy can't be created or destroyed; it's our necessary being. So, like, when responding like that kind of objection, like, hey, you have this idea, but it doesn't prove God or show God um, with like the gap problem here. Like, how do we like look at this um, from necessary being to God? Yeah, right. So there are a lot, of, a lot of points that one could make here, and I make some of these in the latter part of the of the paper as well. Um, let's 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 start with the question about whether it could be something material or physical. Let's say, right? Um, so the difficulty there is, I mean, suppose 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 it were something like the Big Bang or or some quantum foam uh, that uh, existed uh, that that somehow is supposed to exist necessarily. Well, um, the, the fact that this quantum foam exists, right, would be a fact that says this this bit of quantum foam existed here and that quantum foam existed there and this other quantum foam existed over here, uh, and it will be the fact that this quantum foam had a certain property certain density or amount of energy and so on. Now, each of those individual bits looks contingent, right? I mean, maybe there wouldn't be any quantum foam here at all, or maybe it would have a different value, right? And so the, the, the fact that there's this quantum foam at the beginning is a conjunction. It's a, it's a combination of a bunch of contingent facts. And so it's not going to be necessary, right? It's going to be contingent itself. So it looks as though in order for something to be necessary, it's going to have to be simple. Um, if it has parts at all, the parts themselves have to be necessary, 
right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, and so that seems to me to rule out any kind of physical or material thing, because any any kind of physical and material thing is going to have lots of parts, each of which is really is contingent, might or might not exist because of its, of its physicality. So, I think there's some pretty good reason to think here that we've got we've got an immaterial, non-physical uh, foundation to reality. So that's one that's one sort of line of argument. Another closely related line of argument that I make in the paper is what I call the argument for metrical isolation. So, so here the idea is that um, if something's necessary, then it shouldn't be. Uh, it, it has to be. It has to be metrically isolated. So, so suppose. Um, let me give an example. Suppose God is the first cause. And we decide, you know, God has got to have an IQ. So let's say he has an IQ of five trillion or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, I'm going to say that's impossible because if something has a value like five trillion, then it's possible for it to be five trillion and one, or five trillion minus one, or five trillion plus some tiny variation. But that would introduce an element of contingency. That would mean that the necessary fact wasn't absolutely necessary. Uh, that it was that it had an element of contingency to it. So what we have to say is that if God has intelligence, he's got to have infinite intelligence, such that there's no adding or subtracting some tiny amount in, in order to introduce an element of contingency into it. Now, if that's true, again, that's gonna rule out physical things because all physical things have, have finite measures of some kind, which could be a little bit more, a little bit less. And that seems to disqualify them from being necessary beings at all. So that's the second line of argument. There's a there's like five or six lines of argument I could take here. Uh, I'll mention one more, uh, just for the sake of time, that I also mentioned in the paper, which is at this point, we could bring in the design argument, the teleological mm -hmm. argument. So we see in the in the cosmos lots of evidence of design, and the standard objection from the from people like um, uh, what's his name uh, Richard Dawkins and, and a lot of other people make this argument is well you're just pushing the problem back a step because if the universe was designed by some super designer it would be some complex being that needs another cause and we'd have to have a super super designer and so on ad infinitum. So what the what the first cause argument does though is it says look. There's got to be an uncaused first cause. That's the cause of the cosmos that we see. Mm. Now, if we see, if the cosmos shows signs of intelligence, then we can infer that the first cause is intelligent. That's a reasonable inference, right? And I think it does show signs of of, of design. So we, we should infer that the first cause is, is intelligent. And then if Dawkins says, well, what caused the first cause? We'd say, you weren't paying attention. <laughs> it doesn't have a cause, right? By definition, yeah. it's uncaused, right? And so mm -hmm. we, we get to stop there, uh, stop with an, an, with an intelligent, godlike uh, first cause. Mm, great. Uh, Grace, if you're one um, last question I have for you, and we'll go to a little bit of live Q&A for questions, super chat for about 10, 15 minutes, is, uh, you talked about this a little bit in like closing the gap, um, like how do we get from an necessary being to God? I know you did a presentation, I think on Cameron Bertuzzi's like capturing Christianity, going through a bunch of arguments for that. Um, yeah. Probably one of the most uh, simple lines of argumentation against it, it comes from like Graham Oppie, where you talk about have, um, you could call like the singularity necessary or some other thing necessary that doesn't invoke God. It would be like simpler than God because there's less things in existence. Um, kind of like that kind of line of like argumentation from like having a simpler version of necessary of a necessary being under an atheist account than like a theistic account. Yeah. So, I um, mean, there's a lot of things to be said here. Um, I, you know, it's, it's sort of ironic because theists going back um, to the Neoplatonists and, and also uh, Thomas Aquinas have often used simplicity itself as their main argument for God. So mm -hmm. let's say that we want the first cause to be as simple as possible. Right. Well, an immaterial being is simpler than a material one. 
right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because a material being is going to have again material parts. Uh, he's going to have; they're going to have to have some kind of um, mass and energy and temperature and entropy and all these things, which are all going to introduce compli complications into the being. Whereas God is pure being, right? He's absolute being. He's he's got all he's got all the perfections of being in a, in a, in the simplest possible form, which is with no restrictions, no limitations, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, you just you take you take whatever is perfect or good in the world, and you just remove the limitations that we would impose on it, the finite boundaries, and you get you get something simpler. And you remove all of them, you get something with absolute simplicity. So in fact, um, and, and, you know, if, if, you, if you read uh, the Summa Theologia, the relevant parts in, in part one of, of that, where Thomas Aquinas deals with this gap problem, uh, and he deals with it in great length, right? He spends, I think it's like 50 or 60 articles uh, of, of the Summa working through this. And his main path is through this idea of simplicity. So, so I think I think we're gonna I think the theists are gonna win that contest, right? There's no way that the materialist can can out simplify things uh, compared to God. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting to think about um, with like when we're looking at like the necessary being like uh, if you would assert like there's energy or matter or some sort of singularity like as as a theist, we don't have to assert any of that like it seems like there's almost like less complexity in the theistic hypothesis which is exactly what you're saying. So yeah, that's right. So we'll go to a little bit of Q&A now. There's some questions and also some super chats. Uh, we'll do this for 10, 15 minutes and then we'll start to head out here. Um, but the first one is from Apologetics for All. Thank you so much for your super chat. I really appreciate your support and a lot. And he says, any thoughts about the idea that finite arithmetic, like two plus two equals four, are not necessary, perhaps given the rise of transfinite uh, arithmetic, um, alpha null plus x equals alpha null seems to be at face value. Uh, contradictory. So a little bit of my head, but hopefully Dr. Kuhn's. <laughs> so thank you for your question, Josh. Yeah. So um, uh, let's see if I can address this. So I don't know of anybody in philosophy who actually doubts arithmetic <laughs> or even the necessity of arithmetic. So, uh, so I think that that's pretty straightforward. Now, uh, the questioner is suggesting, well, what about, what about transfinite arithmetic? As he says, if you take an infinite number and you add a finite number to it, a particular infinite number, uh, you get the same infinite number back again, which is kind of weird, right? Because obviously, if you take two and add a finite number to it, you get a new number, right? You take Aleph null and add a finite number to it, you get Aleph null again, which is weird. But that doesn't contradict arithmetic, because arithmetic says we're dealing with finite numbers here, right? And for finite numbers, it's true that if you add you know, two finite numbers, neither of which is zero together, you get a new number. That's right. Uh, in, in transfinite numbers, that doesn't work. Okay, that's an interesting fact. But that's just an extension of arithmetic. It's not, it's not contradicting the, the core uh, of finite arithmetic at all. Now, there's another question here, which we might ask, which is, yes, but what about finite arithmetic itself? Is that really necessary? Or does it also have a kind of explanation? And, and here, we might need to distinguish between things that are necessary in themselves things that are sort of absolutely necessary, and things that are necessary through another, necessary in a, in a dependent way. So my own view actually is that arithmetic is necessary, but it's, it's necessary in a dependent way. Its necessity actually depends upon God. It's God and his thinking, which is the ground for the facts about arithmetic, even those facts are also necessary, right? But they're not, they're not the absolute first cause. So you can, you know, you can actually, and in some of my more recent work, I've said, look, even some necessary facts need an explanation like two plus two being four, that actually does need an explanation. So it's not just the contingent facts, it's all, all the facts that are not necessary in themselves that need an explanation. That again, 
pushes you even harder towards a kind of supreme infinite uh, being as, as the first ground. Right. Uh, thank you for that. And thank you for your super chat. Um, another super chat from writer John Buck. Thank you so much for your support. Appreciate that. He says, um, dumb question, but what prevents there from being multiple necessary beings um, grounding different contingent facts? So thank you for your question, John. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not a dumb question at all, actually. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty big question, which we kind of glided over uh, sort of quickly. Um, uh, right. So no, that that's going to be a part of this gap problem, really, because how do you get from a first cause or first causes to a single uh, God. Uh, so that, that is a very relevant question. Um, and there are a number of ways to do that. Um, one way would be just to apply Occam's razor and say, one is enough, why posit more? If you, only, you can get by with one. So, uh, so just as a hypothesis, it seems that a, a single God is a simpler hypothesis than, a than, a man, than many gods. Um, there's also a very interesting article by Jerome Gelman in Religious Studies, um, I think it's around the year 2000, uh, where he revives an ancient argument that, that attempts to show that you couldn't have two all-powerful beings. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, you know, the, there's a sense in which this first cause has to be all-powerful because it's the being that causes all facts in all possible worlds. So it's sort mm -hmm. of that all-power. And um, if there were two all-powerful beings, you'd have to ask, ask yourself, well, why is one doing one thing in one world and not in another world? Uh, you'd end up having, there'd have to be one of these beings that was superior to the other, so to speak, that arranged the others to act or not to act in various worlds. Mm -hmm. And so you would you get an argument for the fact that at least one of these beings has to be the supreme first cause. So that, and, and so that, and there are a couple other arguments you could make. You could also push the simplicity idea uh, and say that the first cause has to be simple if there were multiple uh, uh, necessary beings then, then then there'd be some complexity there which would make them contingent. So, so a number of arguments. Again, not a dumb question, actually, a very sub substantive question. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's a great question. Um, one more super chat from John Buck. Thank you so much again for your support. Really appreciate it. And he says, uh, can you elaborate a bit on what metaphysically necessary means? Um, like this is compared to like different versions in it, like a logically necessary truth or an epistemically necessary truth. Right. Yeah. Good. So right, we do need necessary. We use necessary in, in a number of different ways in, in English and natural language. Uh, sometimes we might mean it, as, a, as he says, as an epistemic notion. So I might say, um, given what we know, it's necessary that um, it will rain tomorrow, let's say. Mm -hmm. and, and we might interpret that epistemically. That is, it's necessary for me to believe it now, given the evidence. Right. Um, and that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about an epistemic notion. We're talking about something metaphysical, something ontological. Um, and and uh, so actually, my own view is that you can't define metaphysical necessity. Uh, it's just necessity simpliciter. Just it's just can't be otherwise, period. <laughs> that's, what, that's what metaphysical necessity means. Uh, no holds barred. Right. Just cannot in any way whatsoever be otherwise. Right. And contingent means could in some way or other be, be, be otherwise. That, mm -hmm. I don't think there's any deeper definition that's possible. Uh, a number of philosophers have tried to define it. But I think, again, the, all the definitions have failed. Um, and so the questioner, Mr. Buck, asks, you know, what about logical necessity? So you might try and define necessity as things that are provable in logic. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I agree that everything is provable in logic is necessary. That seems right. But. Is it true that those are the only necessary things? Well, no, again, because if I ask, well, is it possible 
that things that can't be proved in logic are necessary? Well, that can't be proved in logic, so it must be possible. Right? And if it's possible, it's probably true, right? And so, and so in fact, a necessity goes beyond what you can prove in logic. Uh, it's it's uh, logic is and mathematics are one one are tools we try to use to capture some of the necessary truths, but we can't get all of them that way. We also have to do philosophy, we have to do metaphysics to figure out, you know, what are all the necessary truths. Right. Um, a question from Spartan Theology here, which says, um, "What makes the necessary being Jesus Christ at first that Jews executed by the Romans?" So I don't know if um, he's saying like, "Why would the Trinity be necessary?" Or like, is it necessary that like Jesus came to the earth? Um, I don't know. A couple different angles. I don't know what you think of this question, Doctor Coons. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it, it's asking about something that's way downstream from where we are right now, right? Right now, we're just thinking about whether there's a God at all. Yeah. And uh, you know, if there is a God, of course, then that raises interesting questions about what sort of uh, things that God might have done or be doing for or to us in the religious sphere, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm a Christian myself, um, and so I do believe that uh, that God is, is Trinitarian. There are three persons involved, that uh, God became incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth. Um, but, wow, that would be a long discussion if that's why I believe that. Um, I mean, I think part of it is um, I just find uh, the person of Jesus very compelling, and uh, he yeah. says he's God. And so, you know, that, that itself is pretty impressive. He fulfills lots of uh, prophecies that were made hundreds of years in, in, in advance of his appearance. He performs miracles and he himself is raised from the dead and, uh, and uh, witnessed by hundreds of people after his death. Uh, and he established a church, which has gone on to do amazing things. And um, so I mean, there's just you know, lots and lots of reasons for thinking that, that uh, indeed that might be the case. Right. Yeah, that's great. Um, we do have another super chat from Apologetics for All. Josh, thank you so much. Um, a little bit different direction here, talking about the Grim Reaper paradox, which I've mm -hmm. done a lot of work on, uh, which is yeah. what would you be your response to um, Benardet's uh, response to the Grim Reaper paradox, saying that the man wasn't killed by a single Grim Reaper, but the collection of Grim Reapers? Yes, right. Okay. So, um, yeah, so the Grim Reaper paradox, um, should I say something about that, I guess, or should I just, uh, yeah, I mean, just like give like a very, like an yeah. elevator pitch on the Grim Reaper. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's, it, it's, it's an, it's a thought experiment, uh, created by Jose Benedetti, um, a philosopher at, uh, Syracuse in a little book called Infinity from 1967, I think. So it's been around a while. It's a great, great little book. I really recommend it full of interesting puzzles like this. And in this particular one, you've got a, a victim. His name is Fred, and you have an infinite number of Grim Reapers who are going to kill Fred, right? And each Grim Reaper has a deadline, and at that deadline, if Fred is already dead, the Fred Grim Reaper does nothing, and if he's not dead, if he's still alive, the Grim Reaper kills him on his deadline, okay? And now the weird thing is there's no first Grim Reaper. So Grim Reaper 1, his deadline is, is one minute after midnight. Two is 30 seconds after midnight, three is 15 seconds, four is seven and a half seconds, and so on, right? So they, they get closer and closer to midnight with ever actually getting there, right? So now the question is, can Fred survive this phalanx of Grim Reapers, right? Well, clearly not, right? At least one is going to kill him. At 1201, he's going to certainly be dead. But which Grim Reaper killed him? If you say it's Grim Reaper 1, well, wait a minute. What happened to 2, 3, 4, 5, 6? They should have killed him first. Or say, oh, no, it's Grim Reaper 7. 
what about eight, nine, 10, 11, <laughs> right? Pick any number. There's an infinite number of Grim Reapers you would have had to get past in order to get to that number. So that seems impossible. So it's impossible for any one Grim Reaper to kill him. And yet it's impossible for him not to be killed by a Grim Reaper. And so those of us who, who like this puzzle, uh, many of us argue that this puzzle shows that you can't have an infinite regress of causes because mm-hmm. this, this setup is creating a kind of infinite regress. And I'm arguing that infinite regresses are impossible and that, that the puzzle proves that it's impossible. So um, I don't actually know if Benedetti says this, but I know John Hawthorne says what uh, what Apologetics for All says, which is that it's it's not any one Grim Reaper, it's the whole phalanx together that kill him. But then it's also weird, right? Because none of them swing their sides, right? Because uh, they only you know, X will swing his side only if X plus one, X plus two, X plus three, and so on didn't, right? And so, so none of them, uh, only if Fred is, is, is uh, um, has survived, then he won't have survived. He'll die at midnight, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so none of them swing the side. So he dies even though nobody kills him, right? Uh, you could say the whole phalanx killed him, but they killed him by doing nothing. Which is also weird, right? Uh, and it's even weirder. I mean, I've I've got variations on the puzzle where you know you don't you don't have to worry about Fred at all. You can just set up an infinite series of signalers, right? And let's say that there's a signaler at one BC, two BC, three BC, four BC, and so on. Each signaler has a simple job. He takes a message from the predecessor. He checks to see if it's got a message a number on it. If he does, he passes it on. If he doesn't have a number, he puts his number on it and passes it on. So now the question is that at 1 AD, we get the piece of paper from 1 BC. Is there a number on it? Well, of course there has to be. Somebody put his number on it, right? What number is it? It's impossible because if it's number seven, what happened to 8, 9, 10, 11, and so on? So you get a contradiction. And I don't think the the solution that uh, apologetics person is suggesting here helps. You say, oh, don't worry. It's the whole phalanx of Grim Reapers that wrote their number on it. What number did they write? <laughs> right. I mean, we still get the paradox. So, uh, so I think there's no no way out of it, other than, in my view, to say that the infinite regresses are just impossible to begin with. Mm, great. Uh, we'll do one last question here, and then we'll wrap up um, from Polycarp Emily. Uh, great question here, talking about like from necessary being to God and the gap pump. Why think the necessary being would have no limits on it? Yeah, right. So this is this appeals again to this principle that I that I mentioned of uh, the metrical isolation of the necessary. That, that's the uh, slogan. So the, the, the thought is that um, if something exists and has a particular limit, it has a certain volume, let's say it's got three kilos, of vol- three uh, kilo, uh, liters of volume. Okay. Then whenever that's the case, that thing could surely have had just a little bit more, a little bit less volume, you know, mm-hmm. 3.001 liters or something like that, right? So it looks like introducing a finite limit always introduces an element of contingency into the picture. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll illustrate this in, in another way. So in physics, we have, we have a number of numbers that are called the fundamental constants, like there's a constant associated with gravity. And physicists are not really happy with those numbers just sort of sitting there. They're always looking for an explanation for those numbers because, you know, it's just not satisfying to say the, the gravitational constant just is 3.17533.4, brute fact, right? Uh, you know, it looks, that looks contingent. It looks like it could be a little bit more, a little bit less. We'd like to have an explanation for why it has the value that it does have. And that, that practice in physics, I think, reflects this, this um, dissatisfaction we feel with any kind of finite limit being necessary, 
Um, Josh Rasmussen, uh, in some of his recent work, he talks about a principle of modal uniformity. So the idea is that in our, in our theory about what possibility is like, what the possible worlds are, we don't want to have any arbitrary boundaries in that space. We don't want to just, we don't just want to stop arbitrarily somewhere, but there should be a reason for all the boundaries. And if the necessary being had a limit, that would introduce an, an element of arbitrary boundary to our modal space. And so we should try to, we should try to avoid that uh, as a matter of methodology. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Um, Josh has done a lot of awesome work on this too, but uh, we're about time, out of time here. So Dr. Coons, thank you much for, so much for joining me. Is there kind of like any last thoughts, things you didn't get to say that you want to bring up before we start to wrap things up here? Yeah, one thing we didn't actually talk about much was why I believe in the uh, principle of causation or, or PSR, the principle of sufficient reason at all. So I just want to mention, yeah, there's a lot of good work on that, uh, especially recently. Um, of course, there's the classic book by Alex Proust on, on the principle of sufficient reason. Uh, but I've, uh, I've been doing some work uh, on it, and Josh Rasmussen and others have. Uh, I think one of the most interesting arguments there is that if you deny this principle, you're going to fall into complete skepticism about the world, that uh, you'll just have no reason to rule out the possibility of weird things popping into existence at all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And that and that would, um, well, both, both contradicts our, our everyday experience and also would undermine the very possibility of human knowledge if that were true. Mm -hmm. Right, that's great. There's that's what's so beautiful about oh, cool, about philosophy. There's just so much there. Um, yeah, I know. No, there's uh, been embarrassing yeah. riches. There's been so much work on this that you know I can't keep track of it all anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you really have to, uh, uh, you know, you, you really have to do some some serious study to to keep 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 up on it, all of it. I think you were the person. That, like, someone was like, "How much time do you spend doing like philosophy?" In a week, that was like every hour of the week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's so true. I mean, I actually, I'm assuming that even when I'm sleeping, right, philosophical stuff is back in the brain somewhere. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Coons. Uh, there's a link below. You can follow Dr. Coons and his work at his website. That's down below. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining me. I appreciate everyone who listened and tuned in, all the super chats from Apologetics for All. Um, John Buck and Alex Denman, who just left the super chat with no questions on it. But thank you so much for all your guys' support. I really appreciate your support of here in Apologetics as we keep on going. We're almost full, fully funded. So if you want to support, you can join us on patreon.com slash so here in Apologetics. But Dr. Coons, thank you much, so much for joining me and thank you for helping bring the revival to Christian philosophy. Your work has been amazing over the past few decades. So thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank, thanks for your kind words. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. I hope you have a good one. If you're here, feel free to subscribe on your way out. Um, be sure to follow Dr. Coons in his work if you don't already. But thanks for tuning in, everyone. God bless.